Hi, I'm Derek Pitts, and welcome to The Curious Cosmos. Say, listeners, can you remember where you first learned about astronomy? Was it a planetarium? Was it a book? Some show someplace? Or was it just looking up at the night sky as a kid? I'm guessing most of us didn't get the chance to take dedicated courses on astronomy in high school, but my next guest teaches just that. We're going to learn about his experiences in the classroom, his unique philosophy on science education, and what it's like teaching teens about space in the digital age. John Blackwell is an instructor in science and the director of the Granger Observatory at Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. In today's world where the main tools of communication are awash with self-proclaimed trusted sources of information, even the heavily peer-reviewed institution of science research is challenged to steer carefully through the shark-infested waters of social media and the internet. I met John on a tour of the Astronomical Observatories of Chile back in 2016. The Astronomy in Chile Educational Ambassadors Program is a collaborative project of Associated Universities Incorporated, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the National Optical Astronomy Observatory, and Gemini Observatory, and is funded in part by the National Science Foundation. Good morning, John, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Derek. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, great to see you after our trip down to Chile, where we got to see some really great astronomical equipment scanning the southern skies there. Yeah, pretty astounding. I hearken back to the moment getting out of bed at some crazy hour and dragging my roommate out to look up at the stars. He was trying to sleep. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not sleeping. You're coming out here where you can read by starlight. <laughs> yes, right. The skies were amazing in South America, and it's because the Chilean government is so amenable to hosting astronomical research in the country. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they've been very supportive of the astronomy community, both for the United States and Europe, and now also for various sources like Japan and whatnot are starting to look at Chile as a place to put optical and radio observatories. High altitude, clear skies, it's beautiful. In fact, it's estimated that by 2030, over 50% of global astro research infrastructure will be located in Chile. It's the up and coming place in the world for astronomical research. Now, John, you're deeply into astronomy and space exploration. Can you tell us a little bit about how you come to astronomy and why you've chosen to teach astronomy in a high school setting? Oh, wow. <laughs> Long life story, but that's pretty cool. Um, I think I fell in love with astronomy when I individually discovered Saturn when I was nine years old using a small telescope uh, in my backyard and, you know, type of thing. Hey, dad, mom, get out here. Look at this. I found Saturn, <laughs> you know, and from that moment, totally hooked. But of course, at that point, I think I was like eight or nine. I thought I was going to go into geology. I, I didn't really think of astronomy as a, a profession. And I guess the irony there was I went all the way up into college seeking a physics and astronomy degree, but kind of rapidly switched directions and went into aeronautical engineering, which naturally got me into software engineering. And, and I kind of resided in the world of software engineering for 15 plus years until about the year 2000, when I started thinking, you know, I really miss astronomy a lot. That's a big diversion there. It was kind of a, a left turn, <laughs> and then <laughs> right. a right turn, and then right. a zigzag in the road, you know, and <laughs> while deciding how to change altitude from aviation and aircraft design and computer science and that type of thing, I started a degree in astrophysics, and that was my master's, and decided to start looking for work outside of computer science. And interestingly, I, I fell into this position here. This is my first job where I'm dealing with astronomy directly, but mostly as a teacher, as a guide for young people. And 
my goodness, Derek, it's been it's been 19 years. This is my 19th year teaching here. Wow. I just had to do the math in my head, which is the longest I've been at any one <laughs> job, I suppose. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it is. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Oh, I love it. You know, first of all, astronomy is not the main way in which physics is taught in high school. So that's a bit of a departure right there. And then to actually give students an opportunity to pursue some form of research on their own is kind of a high-octane pursuit uh, for them, I would, I would guess. What kind of research projects are they doing? Very wide-ranging. They can be about the history of astronomy, or they can be all the way to collecting data at the observatory and presenting the research findings of that kind of study. Other kids tend to gravitate towards computers, for example, and will look at big data or what I call moderate data. They don't know big data yet, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're kind of thinking that a gigabyte is tremendously large for them. And nowadays astronomers are talking terabytes. And so still a couple of orders of magnitude on the lower scale of big data. but. Quite honestly, astronomy is headed more toward computer analysis than it is actually that old romantic feeling of staying under the stars with a telescope and looking through an eyepiece all night long. Yeah. That's long gone. We've now shifted astronomy from being the work of that lone observer to the work of devices, equipment, thereby enabling astronomers to widely survey vast swaths of the sky or deeply probe a slice of the universe and we accept what the equipment gives us as factual information. But we also have to remember that all of the equipment we use, we've built them to supplement what our eyes and brain do for us in quote unquote seeing and thereby beginning to understand what's happening out there. So right now I've got students that are looking at local Cepheid variables to determine the distance to them correctly using standard magnitude math and period to luminosity relationships. Now, while that sounds like a lot of astronomical hocus pocus, these actually are the terms that describe being able to measure the brightness of objects out in space. So star brightness varies for a lot of different reasons and astronomers can use that variability to figure out distance, understand stellar function, and to see orbiting planets. Now, luminosity is separate from just brightness of a star because stars can be quite bright in regions of the spectrum that we can't see. Other kids are looking at the NASA Extra Galactic Database studying the age of quasars by literally crunching through the numbers. A quasar is an extremely luminous, active galactic nucleus. These very, very massive, very, very active cores can stand out in luminosity separate from the rest of the galaxy. I've got one student looking at the history of the discovery of comet nuclei. Comet nuclei are the frozen centers of comets composed of frozen carbon dioxide and galactic or celestial rocks, dust, and dirt. Some comets orbit the sun on a regular schedule. Those comets melt a little bit every time they pass around the sun. When that happens, the rocks, dust, and dirt sort of come out of the melted nucleus and spread out along the path of the comet. This eventually becomes what we know of as meteor showers. They went all the way back to ancient Greece, which is a lot further than I thought they'd get. <laughs> it's like pretty slick history stuff there. So right now I'm teaching a selected topics course. We decided to take a very focused look at spectroscopy for the selected topics course this winter. There was a mighty cry from the students to learn about how 
astronomers do spectroscopy and to actually dip their feet into this gigantic swimming pool and try to make sense of it. So this particular course selected topics, one would think that maybe I select those topics, but it's actually done in concert with the students. When we meet for the first week, we put our heads together and say, okay, what are we interested in learning this term? Over the next 10 weeks, you have me and we have the observatory, equipment, and a classroom and a bunch of computers. What do you guys want to do? And spectroscopy was an overwhelming yelp, <laughs> as it were. I'm surprised that they would want to pursue spectroscopy. I wonder where they get that from. I would imagine it comes from their previous course that they took with you. So, <laughs> If we simplify it all the way down, we're literally looking at rainbows of objects <laughs> and it is kind of cool right because are there any unicorns with those rainbows john or is it just the <laughs> is it just the rainbows <laughs> well, naturally we started in the uh, classroom doing very basic kind of let's use a device called a diffraction grating you can probably get these at the dollar store as uh they probably call them rainbow glasses or something oh, like yes, that right. right rainbow glasses sure you just put them up to your eye, and if you look at a bright light on either side of the bright light, you'll see the rainbow or the spectrum of that light going off in each direction. So we, we start there, and then we slowly go to the observatory and do it visually and show that stars have these spectra as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're kind of tying that back to introductory astronomy, where they learned about these mathematical relationships between thermal radiators as things that are hot give off different colors of spectrum. So the hotter stars get, the bluer they become, and the cooler they are, they get redder. So there are these interesting things that elements do when they're in gaseous form. They can absorb or re-emit specific types of light at very specific colors or wavelengths. And that can be an indicator of all sorts of really cool phenomena. So what gases are present in the star? What chemical elements are there? How strong is the magnetic field? Is the star spinning rapidly or is it not spinning at all? Is there a gas cloud surrounding the star? Is the star, or perhaps we're looking at a galaxy, maybe it's moving away from us rapidly. We can actually tell what speed it's moving either directly toward us or away from us using these values of redshift and blue shift. So lots of really cool stuff comes out of the study. And of course we wait for clear skies like no tomorrow. We're in New England. <laughs> right. Not been a blessed place for weather. So we do a lot of meteorological study along sure. the way. <laughs> right, right, right. New Hampshire is no Chile, is it? No. <laughs> I'm going to cry now. <laughs> I know. This is the, like the bane of astronomy is the cloudy sky. So, John, how do you think the work that they are doing helps them understand science? The interesting thing about doing particularly hands-on lab work like this, enables them not only to read about a topic, there's still this epistemological attachment to seeing is believing, to have and hold in front of you this information that you yourself collected using an instrument is still not only very attractive, but is also proof, right? Yeah. That this is real, that, oh my goodness, that's a redshift. Oh, I never thought I'd see something like that. This is the real deal, people, and you too can do it is really important. We had a discussion the other day about something we call the Copernican principle, which is basically stating that humans are not the center of the universe. Copernicus being the one who posited that the sun was actually the center of our solar system. Mm -hmm. And then later other astronomers discerning that our sun is not the center of the galaxy, much less the universe, right? So students really do need to think a little bit more outside the box They've been taught so much and been told so much 
to have faith or belief in stuff that's in textbooks. And I spend an awful lot of time deliberately unlearning that tradition so that they can go out and discover it to be true for themselves. And that's really important. That changes how they see it when they can discover it for themselves. It's a mind-changing paradigm of learning. In today's world, there are so many other sources for information, and I want to sort of establish a separation between the World Wide Web as we know it and social media so that we're not vilifying, you know, a really useful tool for science in the World Wide Web. But social media is propagated by the World Wide Web, and, you know, for teenagers today, social media is a major piece of their existence. So does social media affect how you approach teaching science? And not only social media, but just news propagation or the methodology by which science-like information kind of hits the media. The media in and of itself can be pretty filled with inaccurate or what I like to say is sensational. And I mean really sensational, like overboard sensationalism. Oh, you mean like the most amazing green comet you've ever seen in your life? Exactly. That was exactly <laughs> where I was going. Like this, this comet has been the bane of my existence for the past two weeks. And <laughs> it's interesting because it hit the Boston Globe, then it hit a local paper, front page news, then it hit the, the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> of all things, right? I don't even read the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, the New York Times, and then now the faculty and students are like, when are we going to go out and look at the green comet? Yeah, yeah. It hasn't and been seen for 50,000 years, John. Come on. <laughs> I know. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> and for everybody else listening to our little laughing here, for John and I, the inside joke about this is that we know that this comet is just barely visible under the best conditions with a medium-sized telescope at the minimum. And even then, it's not going to be all that impressive, but what has happened in the media is that reporters not knowing or understanding observational astronomy or having any experience at having seen a comet are revealing to us how little they really know by proclaiming this to be such an amazing astronomical object, you must see this. On one hand, they've got people looking up at the sky, which is great. I love that, right? On the other hand, they're promoting a false reality to people. And they all have this incredible high expectation that when they look through a telescope, they're going to see this fantastic image of a green comet. By the way, green's not uncommon in comets. It's very common. It's just a carbon molecule. But, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. So for your students who self-profess their interest in, in wanting to know more about spectroscopy, I mean, these are students that obviously are excited about science because they've chosen that spectroscopy as the direction that they want to pursue in these advanced projects. But for the students that you see overall, this kind of reporting of science using superlatives all the time to generate interest I'm wondering how you see that affecting students' interest in science. I'm really curious about how you are helping students see this world of science. Now, it's a really important point of view here. Our number one goal is to promote good scientific citizenship among the students so that they do understand the basics of how to identify something that's grossly inaccurate or even slightly inaccurate, and then to promote the reality of, of proper scientific endeavor, right? Science is about a preponderance of evidence. It's about collecting data 
doing analysis of data in an unbiased manner in order to obtain a better understanding of the natural processes that surround us. And I promote that vigorously to the point where I actually design laboratory work where there is a null result, where the students do not arrive at a result that is expected. In fact, they don't arrive at any result. They just get all this data. There's absolutely no solution, no answer. And I can conclude nothing from this research. Mm -hmm. And that is actually fairly disturbing to a lot of students that have never had a lab totally fail, but this is a designed arrival at no conclusion. And I'm really curious to see how they approach it logically as a scientific endeavor. And then really importantly, how they report that back in a write-up. We're talking about me being an astronomy teacher, but the big reality, let's face it, not everybody's gonna become an astronomer. You know, I consider myself really, really fortunate if one of these kids I teach, you know, a couple hundred kids each year, one of them goes into something glancingly close to astronomy. <laughs> right. The, the big goal, of course, is to get them invested in understanding what's happening with our planet, a better understanding of the physical processes therein, so that they understand things like global climate change. Those are big words and very scary situations that our generation and prior generations have kind of like dumped into the lap of these kids. They're going to need a good understanding of scientific processes. They're going to need to understand how science can validate a reality and how realities can be changed by human activity. Are there ways in which any of this way of thinking or the way in which you're teaching might be applied to other people for whom science has always been a challenge? I don't want to, you know, point out adults particularly, but I'll just say, those that have been on the planet a little bit longer have had more time to sort of have these biases and attitudes and peer group orientation kind of baked in. Do you see ways in which we might be able to help those people see the world with a more critical eye? Yeah, I think at some level, people need to come to grips with how dependent they already are upon science for doing an awful lot of what they take for granted on a daily basis. Sure. I mean, let's take the automobile, for example, which is a classic engineering construct from the Benz company way back when to uh, Ford and the creation of the assembly line all the way up to modern day cars. The vast majority of adults in this country have cars, maybe even more than one, and they're dependent upon all these scientific things and these engineering things that go back uh, over a hundred years from the creation of gasoline and oil, synthetic oils, the creation of better metals and plastics to computer chips, technology that enables the automobile to get better gas mileage, better power, et cetera, et cetera. And then cell phones. The cell phones micro miniaturized electronics and basically it's a handheld computer. We laughingly call it a cell phone, but I wonder how many people actually use it as a phone. 90% of the time they're busy looking at a website or using it to calculate some value, or maybe they're looking at the weather or taking a picture with it, right? So all of this comes from science. Every bit of it comes from science. But interestingly, the relationship between many people and science has kind of dwindled a little bit. We've become complacent in that. And I think perhaps some of that comes from the fact that people have lost the joy in learning. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. I think when people actually really love learning something new every day, just a little something that the relationship to their natural surroundings and to science in general also picks up a bit, which is kind of cool. And 
There was also the interrelationship between faiths and religion and science seemed to have created dividing lines as well. It's a tricky way to encounter like people's lives and belief systems vis-a-vis -vis science. It is a natural universe and science is definitely something that has been around and people trust it up to a point. And then for some reason, there's a point where they don't trust it anymore. And that is something that I've been struggling with as an educator. It's like, where does that line form that determines whether a person trusts science and then all of a sudden, no, I'm not going to trust that science. Like, where does that happen? And I think there has been a trust lost in the communicability of science. How do we communicate science to people? has gotten to a point where it's so difficult to understand it that people just shrug it off and say, well, either I just believe it because they know better than I do, or since I don't believe it because it's so complicated, I'm going to give up on it and turn my cheek and, and walk away from it. And that's where it gets really scary because at some level, we all have a responsibility, a basic responsibility to understand our natural world. And I'd be lying if I told you I understood how a COVID vaccine really works, right? I'm not a biochemist. I'm certainly not a biochemical engineer, and I'm not a virologist, you know, but I am a scientist. And what's interesting about that is it gives me at least the ability to have some knowledge and understanding that those scientists that are working to create vaccines are doing what they're trained to do, and they're doing it scientifically, and I trust that process. Yeah. If we can communicate science more readily, having outreach, then this would be a much smoother process. So education by far, to me, which is why I'm an educator, yes. right, is to get this information to people. You know, and you're right about trusting science up to a point because everybody loves to have that handheld device and they trust and use that handheld device and nobody wants to deny the science of that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> sure. Who knows what this thing is doing right now? Who knows Come what on, that thing Derek. is doing? Right. I'm I'm terribly worried about the extra capabilities that are inside that we haven't been told about yet. In a way, you've already answered it, John, but I'm going to ask it again. Other than your concern about how your future is going to be shaped by the youth coming out of high school and college in the next few years, why is it that you're so deeply committed to educating students and educating anybody about the universe and about space exploration? Why are you so deeply committed to this? Wow. My love of the science is, is one thing. It's very personal, I suppose, as well. But I think that people have often missed the opportunity to engage with nature in so many ways. And it's from nature that humanity arises. And nature is vastly larger than humanity. We may think we're important and we may be important, but when you go outside and see green trees and flowering plants and a squirrel bearing a nut and uh, stars at nighttime, maybe you see the moon in the daytime as like a first quarter or something like that. We have been given this beautiful opportunity of living in a universe that has so much to offer us in terms of cool factor, yes. right? Why not spend some time enjoying that and having a sense of place? 
That's very important to me. And it's also interesting that students, once they start getting invested in the laboratory work, it's not uncommon to see a student just pause at the telescope and maybe they're imaging a galaxy cluster and then you'll see tears kind of falling down their face as they realize, I never really thought about looking at hundreds of billions of stars and that there must be hundreds of millions of planets and there's maybe life out there. And this conception of how big the universe really is suddenly strikes a student is a magical moment for them. And it's a magical moment for me. Becoming a critical thinker? Yeah. High on my list of to do's, you know, getting people to think critically, to become responsible, unbiased thinkers, to be able to ask questions about the world and the universe in which they live. Big topics for me. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing really fabulous work. There's nothing like teaching kids about the universe to have specifically that effect and that outcome that you just mentioned about the realization of how big the universe is and, you know, what their place might be in the universe. And uh, that goes a long way to really helping those kids have a totally new perspective on on who they are and their life and their place in the universe. Great stuff. John, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with me today about these topics. These are, you know, it's really interesting to get a perspective on how our kids are learning about the universe, how they're learning that they can really better understand the world of science, become critical thinkers, satisfy their curiosities, and all doing this as high school students very early in their life. So hats off to you for doing that great work with these students and keep up the good work and glad you could be with us. Thank you, Derek. Really appreciate being on the show with you today. It's been fun. Cheers. As I think about my conversation with John, I'm struck by the last story he told about seeing students tear up behind the eyepiece of the telescope. Even in this digital age, the simple experience of observing a celestial object reconnects us to an ancient time when we were closer to the universe, when we stood in the dark and just looked up into a pristine sky and wondered, what are those lights? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on The Curious Cosmos. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer and Director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.